This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The New Zealand Young Writers Festival celebrates the cutting edge of contemporary literary practice in Aotearoa with performances, workshops, conversations, markets, social events, and more. The festival is funded by Dunedin City Council and Otago Community Trust. This live recorded podcast is brought to you by Otago Access Radio and supported by Dunedin UNESCO City of Literature. Authentic and accessible. What is accessible theatre? How do we make work which is genuinely authentic? In this episode, playwright Dan Goodwin takes us through the ins and outs of writing mental health and disability theatre. Deconstructing what it means to weave accessibility into narrative and ground our stories in the communities they emerge from. So a little bit about how like today is going to run. The workshop's called Authentic and Accessible. We're hopefully going to be chatting a whole bunch about what both of those words mean, especially into connection with like lived experience, both for ourselves and for others. Um, and how we can tell stories using that experience, both in ways that are entertaining and genuine and authentic, and ways that kind of fit into the mainstream and also subvert the mainstream when we are let down by art forms that should be there for us, which happens a lot sometimes. But quesera. Um Cool. So before we begin, I just want to as well give some thanks, give some thanks to... Um, Dunedin UNESCO City of Literature, um, Otago Access Radio, Dunedin City Council and Otago Community Trust, uh, both for sponsoring this to be a podcast, which is really, really cool. Very excited about that. Um, And also just for supporting the festival in general, which is really exciting. Um, So given that this is going to be like aspects of it are going to be recorded later, I just want to do a quick check in with you all and say that because we're talking about like sensitive experiences at points sometimes some big emotions can come up sometimes we expect it sometimes we don't um but regardless you don't have to share any aspect of yourself or your experiences that you don't want to so that includes your story you don't have to share anything you don't want to to prove a point um and that also includes like this workshop in general yeah so if you need a break at any point and you're like hey i'm going to put myself on mute and turn my video off and i'll be back in like five to ten minutes Katie Pie, you do what you gotta do, yeah? Um, cool. Um, so just to start off, I'd really be keen on learning a little bit more about some of y'all. So I thought we could just do a real quick, like, introduction round with just, like, name, pronouns, and a little bit about your writing journey as well. I see we've got some poets in the room, we've got some comedians and storytellers, which is really cool. Um, A lot of this stuff today is like geared around theatre, but there's lots of like general takeaways hopefully in it as well, which should be really exciting. Um, Yeah, so let's just jump right on in. Um, My name is Dan, Uh, my pronouns are they, them, Um, a gender, Um, and oh, writing journey. Theatre maker by trade, that's where I started and then kind of accidentally fell into performance poetry uh, while I was studying in the UK. Um, yeah, so Dan, they, them, theatre writer, performance poet. Um, I started writing um, theatre and poetry because of uh, my lived experience with mental health, pretty much. Um, I started experiencing psychosis during my master's degree in the UK. Um 
long story short, I tried to find information out in the real world about what that meant and how to kind of understand it and express it. Um, and there wasn't any information available. So I started writing it for myself, um, which I think is how a lot of us kind of get into writing. We want to see stories in the world. They don't exist. So we make them ourselves. Um, yeah. So that's me. Would anyone like to jump on next and do a little? Oh, actually, as well, before we jump around, um, for anyone who is new, totally new to Zoom as well, at the very bottom of your screen, you should see a little button that says reactions. And then on that button, you should see raise hand. Um, if you click that button, it should put you at the top left of the screen to like jump to the front of the queue. So if you at any point during the workshop, if you've got something that you want to ask or something that you want to say or share, use that button and I will see you pop up on the top left. Kitty pipe. Boom. Who wants to jump in next? What was the question? Oh, just a quick like introduction about about yourself so like name pronouns and then where you kind of a little bit about your writing journey what you write why you write um yeah doesn't have to be anything big but okay i'll go um kia ora everyone um i'm doris um i am currently in tamaki makoto aotearoa um we're in lockdown right now um um she her that's my pronouns and uh, my writing journey. Ooh. <laughs> um, I, um, back in when I was in intermediate, um, from, I think, I think it was a period from primary school to intermediate, the transaction period from that, I moved from Hong Kong to Singapore and, um, uh, I, uh, I had a, um, how do you call it? I had a really, really big major car accident and um and then I was in a wheelchair for three, two and a half years, and then I have to learn how to walk again. So that was that was quite like traumatic for me. And then for those three years, for those three years, I started writing. Um, but my writing was really dark. It was, you know, it was like if I if I like I still have them. And if I decide to publish them, it will be a book to convince people how to commit suicide. It's like very, yes, very, very dark, but very interesting to read. Like for me to read it back now is quite interesting. So I, I don't write, write properly. I'm still learning to, um, I'm still learning how to write, um, you know, like beautifully and stuff, but many just journaling um, daily and journaling how I feel and um, a little bit extra stuff, spices into it, um, a little bit dramatic um, on my writing, but that's that's about it. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, Doris. Thanks for joining us today and sharing a little bit about yourself. Thank you. Thank you. It's really lovely to see you here. Um, I want everyone to just like pause for a little second and like take a deep breath in and then a deep breath out yeah thank you for that um we're going to hear some real big stories and experiences today i can feel it i can feel it in my heart which is awesome i really love that it's such a privilege um to be able to hear 
and engage with people's stories um, and those journeys as well. That's so precious. So thank you for sharing, Doris. I really appreciate that. Um, who would like to go next? Jess. Oh. Hello, um, my name is Jess. My pronouns are she, her. I uh, am studying journalism at AUT, Auckland University of Technology. It's a time. And I do performance poetry, which is how I know Dan. Um, I started writing because I <laughs> I used to live in a cult, which is always a really funny thing to drop. But I used to live in a cult. And um, I never really had an opportunity to say anything that I wanted or needed to say. And so um, I started writing just to be like, I have all of these feelings and all of these thoughts and all these emotions and no one's listening and I just want someone to listen. Um, Yeah, and so I started writing slam poetry and through there I've competed in the largest youth slam in Auckland with Ken Arkind. I've competed in the um, Jaffa adult slams alongside Dan. And yeah, we're just out here writing, no longer living in a cult, living our best lockdown lives. Thanks, Jess. Boom. Shout out to that slam poetry community up in Tamaki. It's a good one. Um, boom. Cool. Who is next? Well, boom. Jump in, my friend. All right. Well, hello, hello. Um, my name's Will. Um, my pronouns are he, am. Um, and compared to you guys, I can't really follow up with much. Um, I'm still in school. Um, I'm in my final year of school, year 13. Um, but I've always, for some reason, had an interest in like creatively writing, um, like character crafting and then just yeah. writing a novel or something of some description. Um, so I wrote my first proper thing in year nine. It was about 10,000 words. It was really, really bad, but it was still a start. Um, and from there, like all the way through school, I've just been writing these types of just interesting stories, I find. Um, yeah, that's <laughs> really all about me. <laughs> Thanks very much for that. It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, absolutely no pressure to follow up anything with anything. Every story is welcome here. It's very exciting to have you. Cool. Yeah, um, thanks for having me. Also, um, Maital and Ilan, Ilan have just joined, I think. I just wanted to say hello. We're just doing a real quick round of like introductions, um, uh, pronouns, and then a little bit about your writing journey at the moment, if you want to share that with the group. Who's next? Brendan, boom. Jump on in there. Well, kia ora, everybody. I'm Brendan. Uh, he and him are my pronouns. And I'm up in Tamaki Makoto, Auckland uh, as well. And um, I am a technically a full-time uh, comedian and writer. Um, I've been doing this for over a decade now. Um, and I'm one of those, I'm quite lucky, recently I've started writing for TV, uh, for New Zealand TV. So I'm one of those people that hopefully tries to get in more, uh, yeah, that I've, I've got an opportunity to to get better stories and better um, better representation on our screens that uh, Dan was railing against. Um, I'm, I'm their enemy. It's fine. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> um, but yes, I, I am doing this, this in particular because throughout, throughout my stand-up um, career, uh, my favorite things to perform have been hour-long shows, hour-long solo shows um, that are quite a, a lot more theatrical or have more narrative-based um, content than most stand-up 
which has been a little bit of my point of difference in the comedy scene. Um, and it's very, very personal. Uh, I overshare uh, to great extents. Um, and I just, I, and I, I've, I've always struggled with uh, the who, who am I to take up space that's like it's a personal thing for me. It's like who am I to to, to take up the space? I, I battle between like no, but I'm I'm good at this and I've got something to share. But like why why me kind of thing. Um, and so I've just always been like I, I, just, I just want to be a lot more uh, uh, particular and careful and uh, kind of proactive in in how and what I do and present. Um, so that's why I'm very excited about this. Um, and also, uh, I love Dan, performance-wise <laughs> and person-wise. Aww. Love you too, yes. my friend. That's me. Boom. Thank you, Brendan. That's really cool. Exciting as well to hear about the like the positions that you have and what you want to bring to it. That's really kind of from this side of the kind of fence, that's really exciting to hear that there are people pushing for that kind of representation in those spaces. So oh. cool. That's like a little, little fire in me. I feel a little warm. Um, Molly, do you want to jump up with um, a quick introduction? Sure. Uh, kia ora koutou. I'm Molly. Um, my pronouns are she, her. I am currently living and working in Aotearoa, so that's in the Waikato, and we are in lockdown as well. Um, as for my writing journey, I'm much like Will. I don't really have anything kind of dramatic. Um, I've just kind of always been writing my whole life and recently have decided that the career I'm in is not the career I want to be in for the rest of my life. And so I'm trying to pursue something that fulfills my desire for creativity. Um, But being a creative, it is very hard to get started. And I am very, uh, what's the word? I guess amateur and I don't know a whole lot. So I figured the best way to start would be to learn. Okay. Cool. Thank you so much. Um, Oh, that's really exciting. We've got so many people from so many different kind of avenues and creative spaces. And like, I hate the word like skill levels because I think it kind of is quite restrictive, but people from all steps of like the journey as well is really exciting. Um, Thank you, Molly. Kia ora, welcome. Um, The information today that I've like prepared on a big like PowerPoint thing, um, some of it will be preaching to the choir. Some of it will be real like, basic stuff um and then hopefully there's some like niche topics that we can like really grapple into later on um but i just want to say if at any point you want to like raise a point or a question or um divert on a tangent totally cool that is entirely what we're here for yeah um i'm really aware whenever i do run uh, or make a kind of workshop or any kind of space around disability about the fact that disability is not a one-size-fits-all label it is not a community that comes together with neat language um by any stretch of by any means um so yeah you'll hear me say disabled a lot as well but know that that kind of encompasses a realm of disability mental health neurodiversity um, and then also as well, aspects of the deaf community as well, who often don't refer to themselves as disabled. Um, 
So yeah, there's a real kind of like branch of different communities that we're talking about when we talk about disability and inclusion and access. Um, but we will come to learn what those communities mean, hopefully in a little while. Cool. So I'm going to start sharing my screen. And now I did an hour long tech run with the Dean Fringe earlier. And after the third time, I got it right. So let's see if this works. <gasps> Yay. Cool. Authentic and accessible. Boom. Blah, 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 blah. So this workshop originally when it was pitched was geared around uh, theatre. It was geared around playwriting. So just a quick like show of hands. Would anyone here consider themselves like primarily a playwright, primarily wanting to write for theatre, for stage? Dope, amazing. There will be specifics in here about theatre craft that are like totally, oh no, Molly, amazing. Perfect. This information is for you, in you specifically. Um, it's a lot of the information here is geared around the craft of theatre and especially is geared around dismantling, well not dismantling, but really like critiquing and deconstructing theatre as we think of it in terms of a Western perspective. Yeah. Um, so there will hopefully be some like real general learnings in there that everyone can take away from, but also some really like specifics about theatre and the way that it functions specifically. If, for instance, because I know we've got some comedians and storytellers tellers and poets in the room, if you ever want to ask a question about your like specific craft and the different kind of functionings of it, again, raise your hand and we can chat about that. Easy hands. Cool. So at first, I just want to like ask a real basic question to the group. Um, what is theatre? What is theatre? And actually, I might actually even replace this with a different question and say, what is art? Yeah. Um, when I ask that, what I'm essentially asking at is, what does it look like? When it's out in the real world, what does art or artwork kind of look like? And then also, what is its purpose and its function? And also, just as a heads up in general, there are no trick questions throwing throughout this whole um, workshop. So I'm never trying to trip you up or prove a point. Oh my gosh, it's like we're all in the same room together. Cool. So we've got art is freedom of expression, expression of self-ideas, the sharing of ideas, anything beautiful. I love that. I love that. Communication, human to human, beautiful. People always have something to say. Art is allowing that to happen. I completely agree. I love that sentiment. Cool. Oh, yay. I'm glad that that worked. I've been, like, troubleshooting this whiteboard function for, like, the past day and a half with mixed results. So I'm glad that that worked. Cool. Cool. So all, all in all... We have essentially some like real common themes, right? Art is a kind of communication. It is deeply personal, is meaningful to the person, beautiful, emotional, connects to our experience. And it's a way of sharing said experience with other people, right? It's a way of connecting between different human beings. So the reason that I like to start with a real basic question like that, um, is really kind of to get back to the real like basic functions of what art is and what any kind of art form is, right? 
because of this kind of like guiding principle, which will kind of underpin everything that we talk about today, which is the way that we conceptualize art informs the way that we approach making it. Yeah. Um, if we were talking specifically about theater, um, for anyone who has studied theater in any kind of capacity, you'll know that there are so many different schools of thought, schools of ideas about what good theater is, right? And that changes not only based on the school of thought that you're researching into, it also changes depending on where you are in the world, right? So good theater in the UK versus New Zealand versus America looks very different, even though we are typically like from similar schools, right? And the further outside of that kind of community and network that you go, the more drastic those changes are, yeah? And that's the same for any art form, right? So good poetry in, um, in Asia is different than good poetry in New Zealand. Yeah. Good poetry in Australia is different than good po poetry in New Zealand. Yeah. And so I want to introduce one more kind of like real basic um, ideological construct idea to kind of underpin what we're going to talk about today. It's called three fields of knowledge. Yeah. And this is a kind of a way of stepping away from craft um, as an idea of a basis or a framework for knowledge. And it's taking it into a much more general kind of open space, hopefully, and kind of undefined space as well. So what I mean by the three fields of knowledge is I mean that these are whenever we think of an idea or an action or an image or anything at all. These are the three spaces that that information comes from. Yeah. So we've got lived experience which is anything that we experience personally for ourselves. Yeah, we know it to be true because we have lived it firsthand. Um, we have research, which is the lived experience of others that we then consume or witness in some form. That might be through social media, through performance, through video. Um, we might read about it. We might see it firsthand. And then lastly, we've got imagination. Yeah which is exactly kind of what it says on the tin. Imagination is information that we create ourselves. It's important to note, like, no placing like these three. Sometimes as soon as we talk about lived experience in a space, sometimes people have a habit of getting up in arms a little bit. They start to think, oh, okay, we're talking about lived experience, which means everything is going to be focused around that. Um, a little bit, that's a little bit true, especially in this workshop. But I really want to stress that no one of these kind of fields of knowledge is more important than the other. And actually, we always use all three and an intersection of all three. Yeah. So lived experience, the things that we experience um, ourselves are still filtered through um, different kind of beliefs and fields that we grew up with. Yeah. So our education, uh, religion, culture, um, everything that we kind of see and witness around us is filtered through what we already know. So even lived experience has that kind of aspect of imagination to it as well that changes the information as it comes in. Uh, similarly, imagination, people often um, think that when I talk about lived experience, that means I'm diminishing the power of imagination. Um, if we have any actors in the room at all, this is probably, this is the first thing that you'll learn in drama school, yeah? learning about um, how to 
bolster our imagination and work from a place that is unrestrictive and free from tension is one of the first things we do as actors um, and is equally valuable for other creatives as well. Yeah. Imagination gives us the capacity to kind of expand and develop what we know or experience through our lived experience or research and catapult it into new kind of realms. Yeah. So going from these three, these two kind of like underpinnings for the whole thing. Oh, gosh, there's some heavy text. Um, so, yeah, I just want to say we always engage with information and any creative process, first and foremost, from the position of knowledge that we already have. Yeah. Even when research and imagination are primary tools for source material, we understand and break down information based off of what we already know or presume. This is the same for information for individuals as it is for groups. Right. And that includes groups that produce theater or produce television, Brendan, or produce any kind of artwork. Right. As a community, as a group, we always come from a set um, or a pre-existing notion of beliefs and ideals that inform how we approach new information. Yeah. It informs how we um, process information and then also act on it as well. Yeah. Which is really important for this last little point at the bottom, even when companies claiming to make inclusive work call out for work, they do so based off of their own base knowledge. The reason that that is included in there, and this is true again for individuals as it is for groups, the reason that, that is in there is that whenever we think about diversity and inclusion or accessibility or authenticity, we have to start from a position of really interrogating what those concepts mean for us. Yeah. Sometimes when inclusion and accessibility is framed in the media or in the news or articles, whatever, it's framed as this kind of golden standard, this kind of free from bias world where everyone has the same level of engagement with a space or a work, you know, or a conversation. That's just not true. Bias is unavoidable. It is always there. It is always acting on us. And the most that we can really hope to do is become as aware of it as possible. Yeah. Which is another reason why we kind of start from this really like fundamental level. Yeah. What is our, where, where does our knowledge come from? Yeah. Because the further down that we can get to really start interrogating where our information comes from and why the, why we think both individually and collectively the way that we do, the more, the more that we can um, start to incorporate those challenges into our craft, right? We can question our process, how we learned our process, and then start to change it effectively and consciously. In terms of companies or individuals or groups um, reaching out for inclusion and diversity, which we're starting to see more and more of, right? We're seeing more theater groups, more production companies, more spaces calling out for work from people who they haven't heard of before. Yeah, which is amazing, which is really good and important and is definitely the direction that we need to be heading in. But questions that we often don't ask ourselves. Yeah. Who are we asking to join us when we think about reaching out or offering space? Who pops into our brain? What image of what people are we thinking of? What communities come to mind when we think of, oh, underrepresented, yeah? 
because again sometimes we think oh what are some unrepresented communities out there and rather than doing the kind of research or the scope to actually see what communities are underrepresented we kind of attach ourselves to ideas that already exist and it's just jumping the gun a little bit and lastly yeah what communities are out there who we don't even know are out there yeah so this is a little bit about like this is a little bit about theater and i'm wondering how much of this would be relevant i'm gonna go with uh writing is just information writing is a guide map yeah so when we talk about theater in particular what we're talking about in terms of theater writing specifically playwriting and actually this is really similar for television writing as well right we're talking about writing once removed and interpreted right so when we write a script or a story we're writing something that is then going to be interpreted and and crafted into something different yeah we are writing instructions and although theater and television script writing is kind of has two degrees of separation you know we as writers create something and then we pass that on to a director and a cast and crew and then they create a project the same is true for um poetry same is true for novel writing book writing prose any kind of writing yeah we are crafting something we are arranging information in a specific way to achieve a specific effect yeah um once it's handed over as well we have very little control over how that is perceived right very little control over how that is perceived um essentially that's because audiences have this is the boom there we go audiences kind of have the easiest job in terms of um the art world being a part of our works yeah because audiences are an integral part of art yeah um we make things to share them with other people we share things um and we create things for an audience right audiences are an integral part of what we do often audiences assume that their role is passive yeah there is a luxury in terms of being an audience member which is oh i get to sit back and i get to watch whatever is unfolding in front of me all of these like decisions that have come together because that's all essentially like theater and film and poetry writing is right is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of decisions that we as writers have thought about excruciatingly and edited and changed for years and years and years sometimes yeah and it comes together as a cohesive whole for an audience who gets to experience in a very very short amount of time yeah they get that kind of condensed experience sometimes that puts us into a false state of security thinking oh cool i don't have to like question what i'm bringing into this i'm not i'm not an active participant here i just get to watch i just get to show up and experience some artwork amazing love it um i would argue that that's not the case um i think being an audience member in general is a very active role a lot of the times um a lot of the time but craft as it is kind of conceived often lets audience members off the hook yeah 
sometimes we want to show up and we want to turn our brains off or we want to kind of like mellow out yeah um the down the upside of that is that you can hook people with um with your media with your social media you can hook people and you can keep them there for as long as it takes to make money right which is a very kind of like <laughs> pop word kind of like condensed version of capitalism boom but the downside is audiences don't often feel the need or want to question the knowledge that they bring into a space yeah um because audiences are ten audiences are the same as creators yeah all of their information still comes from the same three places yeah they've either experienced it themselves they've read about it or experienced it in the world from other people's lived experience they've researched it or they've imagined it yeah um when i say imagination i include as well that they've might have read something and then let their imagination run wild yeah we're seeing a lot of that at the moment around information around covid being passed around and people forming their own opinions all over the place imagination run wild right and people who are very unwilling to um critique that information or interrogate that information but that's a different workshop so the reason i bring all of that up is because i want to ask y'all a question and this is we can kind of like jump back into a group discussion for a little while i wanted to ask you as a group um have you ever shared an experience only to learn that no one has heard of or about said experience or people's understanding has been at least partly or totally completely incorrect yeah Katie Pye, if not, again, there is zero pressure to share anything that you don't want to share. That is totally fine. Um, but yeah, I wanted to like really open it up to the group to see if that if those questions resonate with any of you. I know that it's definitely resonated for me at times in the past, and I think it's one of the biggest kind of frustrations that we experience as um, disabled and um, as disabled writers and creators, you know? Cool, so we've got some hands. That's really exciting. Boom. Um, shall we jump from Jess first and then we'll go on to Molly? Does that sound good? Boom. Also, and as well, I might just give a quick like warning to the group as well, just because I know that we've got some new people in as well. Um, you're gonna, you might hear some real big experiences today. It might be some big emotions that come with it. This is a totally open and carefree space. Um, but again, if you need to take any space to yourself to kind of like sit back and have a little breather, totally fine. Yeah. On you go, Jess. Back to you. Hello. So I'm really biting at this. Um, so for me specifically, definitely a lot of the things like around my childhood and growing up and um, living in a cult. And I definitely drop it like that to make people interested. But in reality, it's very like, this is not the most interesting thing about me. Um Marcus and I, who Marcus is my best friend and also another performance poet, um, we have so many discussions about how we're so sick of being called things like brave or resilient because of what we write about. Um, and, yeah, there's just this misconception. Like, I didn't live in Gloria Vale. I was not weird to be married at 14. Like, it's not what you see on TV. There were no psycho serial killers. Um, yes, it was, yeah, not not what everyone thinks that it is. Um, yeah. Just that. Apologies, I don't know if anyone just saw me like jump there for a second. I just felt 
coffee all over my table. <laughs> I was very, very, I was like, did I do something wrong? Did I do something wrong? What am I doing? I'm going to wrap it up now. Right. No, I'm going <laughs> to grab some and clean that up real quickly. Um, not at all. Were you finished as well? I did not mean to cut you off at all. More to that story. No, you're right. Yeah, I'm done. It's basically just like the misconception of what what it was like, and then the the escalation of wow, you're so interesting. Wow, tell me about it. Because in reality, it was a very traumatic thing, and yeah. I don't mind sharing parts of it. Or when people are like, wow, tell me everything. Let me let me in. It's like I don't know you, and this for me is a very traumatic thing. And it took 11 years of my life, and I am still actively recovering. Um, yeah, it's a it's a bit it's a bit much. Heck yeah. It's also like, I imagine it's something that a lot of people's first instances of it are only through, a lot of people's first impressions of it are only through artwork, you know, mm. or through that, those kind of like stories that have almost become like local myths. Legends. Yeah, especially because I kind of left the cult right when Gloria Vale was airing. And so everyone was like, wow, did you live in Gloria Vale? And I was like, no, I didn't. It was nothing like that. It was kind of like that, but not really like that. Um, and so, yeah, we always have these, like, preconceived ideas of what things are based on either, like, newspapers, books. I personally love reading about true crime. So I do read about different cults, and all of them are completely different. But, um, yeah, it's just not the same. Hey, yeah. Um, a little bit later on, we'll chat about um kind of like tropes and audiences assumptions and expectations and the kind of like shorthands for stories that already exist in the world and how we're um sometimes like aided by them and then also sometimes a little bit hindered or forced in directions that we don't want to move in um so that's really really cool thank you for sharing that um molly did you want to share something yes um just going off what Jess said with um, when you do like tell your experience to someone, um, if it's someone that hasn't necessarily experienced that, there is a lot of like, oh, tell me every single detail. Um, but it is quite a personal thing to share and you're not always in the space to share that because it's often something that is quite traumatic. Um, and yeah, it does rely a lot on other people's preconceived notions. Like um, when Jess said she grew up in a cult, my immediate thought was like some sort of Gloria Vale, Charles Manson, like Handmaid's Tale kind of thing, Um, which I'm sure it wasn't like that, but I don't have any other idea of what it was like. Um, And the same goes for mental health because I find that you know, if you tell people you have depression, if they've never experienced that, um, they don't really have an idea of what it is actually like. And even if it is someone who has experienced it, everyone does go through it in different ways. So what they're going through might not be what you're going through. So they can't always understand unless you go into it in um, extreme detail, which again, you're not always in the place to do. Yeah, totally, totally. It's so much stories. Stories are work, you know. Experiences are work. Holding them is exhausting. Sharing them is exhausting, and it's a process, you know. Like even if it's just talking to a friend, you know, there are aspects of storytelling in that. There are decisions that we make when we share our experiences, um, especially when they're as kind of heavy 
especially when they are kind of like heavy or have a lot of weight to them, um, we make decisions about how we're going to frame them, how much information we're going to share, you know, that's a big process. And a lot of the time, we, a lot of the time we do it on the fly. Yeah. And there is no kind of manual for it either. <laughs> you know, we take our best shot at it. Um, sometimes we overshare, sometimes we undershare, you know, but we're always making those decisions about how we set it up and how we share it. Um, Brandon, you got your hand up. Do you like to share something? I do have my little hand up. Um, yeah, this is, well, for me, as, as, a, as, a, as a comedian up on stage, um, I, would, I, I, I would like to think, or maybe not like to think, but a, a stand-up comedy audience is definitely the least passive uh, art form because it's, it's got such a like, if you say something, if they laugh, it's successful. If they don't laugh, then you're failed. Um, and I've always kind of like, I've always looked at that work, that kind of performance work. I've got that Venn diagram of my head of all, all my bases is like, uh, what the audience wants, what I want. And then I try and find the middle ground, um, just, just as the art form. But then I also think that Venn diagram works for, um, experience because I really like finding that, finding that middle ground of relatable but also unique. I think that's, I always try and hook people in with something very relatable. And then, and then I tend to like try and get to the more unique experience and like surprise it. Cause I love, I love, I love it when I like this, there's, there's, there's a joy in finding something relatable with another human being, but there's a very different joy in learning something completely new for the first time. Um, and they're both they're both very powerful things. Um, so I actually you know, I, I I do it the opposite of Jess. I normally start with something very relatable, and then I set up that space and be like, "Hey, look, da 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 da," and then I drop the the big things that that are unique and maybe somebody doesn't um, experience. So it's yeah. I, I, but in saying that, I've definitely experienced saying something out loud and then a room full of strangers being like, "Nope, that's not a thing." Um, and it is a horrific feeling, um, but it, I think it's something that we have to go through. And so, yes, we're, we're, it's nice to know that we're all not alone. But yeah. Heck yeah, I have absolutely 100% had that feeling of a silent room after a mic drop. Quietly walk back on stage, pick up the microphone, apologize, and then retreat backwards. It's not a fun feeling. Um, I love what you're talking about as well, about the kind of like, the balance between um, kind of like the cues that we look for or that we're they're trained or experienced through experience kind of learn to look out for in terms of like gauging the success of our of our artwork you know like whether it's clicks in a poetry competitions or laughter in a comedy performance or you know I remember I remember being in drama school one of the things a teacher used to say to me is after you hear a sigh or a cough from the audience five times, the show's gone. <laughs> and I don't know why that's such a like pseudoscience, like grandmother's tale sort of piece of advice, but it's really, really stuck with me. You know, that idea of like, as soon as you hear someone cough for the fifth time, it's a bad show. It means you failed. It means you're boring. You're gone. Um, and it's stuck with me. It's stuck with me. Um, we'll be chatting a little bit um, a little bit later on about that thing of 
how to measure our own kind of success as artists coming from our own kind of like personal place of experience versus working in a collective kind of community right which we all have to do we all have to engage in a kind of in communities that aren't ours we have to be visitors and guests you know that's just part of the job yeah we go into different spaces um so thank you for that thank you for sharing uh jess you had something else jump on in yeah, I wanted to talk about um, how you like say things that you think super relatable and then the audience is like, no, it's not that relatable. Um, and I think specifically like when we do slam poetry, so there used to be a scene called Breaking Boundaries in Auckland and that was like a queer-centred um, poetry hub-based community, arts community sort of thing. And so going there and talking about, I'm, I'm bi, I'm a panel, I don't really know, but not straight. Um, and talking there about like girlfriends and partners that are not um, men because I, you know, am a cis woman um, is really fun because everyone gets it. You don't have to kind of explain it. And then going to kind of, because Breaking Boundaries has now disbanded and going into our other poetry space, which is incredibly supportive, um, but also not as queer. And so having to be like, yeah, 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 ex-girlfriend and waiting for everyone to be like, mm, but no one no one gets it because a lot, not everyone, obviously, there are definitely lots of queer people in it, but a lot of people there are also like a hit. So I'm like, this hit, and it's just very funny. Being like, haha, everyone's going to get it, ex-girlfriend problems, hee-hee. And people are like, no, 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 we don't get it. Um, it's just really funny. I just wanted to say that. I understand, Brendan. Thank you. I, yeah, I super, I think that people sometimes, especially like relating to the idea of like queer spaces, um, and I think it's actually true across across the board. I think sometimes people mistake queer presence for queer space and they mistake um, inclusion and participation and access. And again, we'll chat about this like in a little bit, but we mistake inclusion for like actively being able to lead aspects of a space and actively make decisions that shape that space as well, which is two different things, you know, inclusion and being able to craft, craft your own experience, but also being able to craft a space based off of your experience are two different things. Um, and I think people don't often make that distinction. So we'll chat a little bit about that as well. Um, and also as well, I just kind of wanted to touch on something that I think a lot of kind of has come from a lot of people, this idea that some topics across different, across different art forms, um, some topics require more exposition than others. Exposition for anyone who doesn't know is just like a period at the beginning of a story or a poem or a play, or whatever, um, where people give kind of explanations for stuff that might come up in the story. So character names, identities, da 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 da. da. Um, I remember having a conversation um, with a poet a while ago in a after a slam, um, and I think I was doing I, something I often do, having a little like tirade around how slams are not often the most accessible and not often the most um, disabled centric spaces um and i was being challenged on it a friend was really like was telling me we like try to be as inclusive as possible we try to accept every kind of voices this is an un uncensored space and i made the point of okay but you don't have to give a 20 second explanation about what psychosis is in your poems before you start talking about what you want to talk about and when you've only got three minutes to write a poem 
and like to fit a poem in, that 20 seconds really matters, right? That's 20 seconds less than that I have than you have, yeah? Because I've got to explain to a room full of people who don't know what psychosis is, what psychosis is. Whereas you can just start talking about <laughs> whatever you want to talk about and it's fine, you know? And then also that's a creative element to that as well, because there's a question of, okay, given that there is more exposition in this work that I have to get through, how do we frame that? How do we arrange exposition, especially when we're talking about more exposition, in a way that's engaging and interesting and doesn't immediately make an audience go, oh, okay, we're here to learn something great, you know? Because again, that turns audiences off, right? Sometimes audiences don't want to be challenged. They don't want to engage. They don't want a subverted art form. They just want to sit down and be entertained, you know? So I'm going to chuck up another, um, another quick question for the group. And this is another whiteboard one. Hopefully it goes as well as the last one did as well. Um, I want to chuck up another question to y'all as well. Um, what is accessibility? Yeah. And again, I'm talking about um, what does it look like both physically in a space and ideologically? Yeah. What does the concept of accessibility mean? What does a person having access to a space look like? Yeah. Especially when it goes right. Yeah. What does an inclusive space look like? What qualities of, of those spaces exist for you? So I'm just going to chuck up the whiteboard real real quickly do, 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 do. share screen whiteboard oh my gosh all these beautiful ideas i love it so i'm just gonna clear this and then yeah same as last time yeah jump on in there and throw out whatever whatever accessibility means like to you cool i love it so we've got being understood believed listened to and not being held back because of your differences. Ideally, equality, absolutely, absolutely. An even playing field. Uh, spaces created by disabled people for disabled people. Cool, I love um, the created by in that. I really love that, that's really beautiful. Um, able to be understood and viewed regardless of differences. Cool, clear, easy to understand expectations, hopefully before entering a space, definitely. Ramps, ease of access for people with physical disability, absolutely. We're talking about like physical access there, structural kind of differences in space. Got one in the chat as well. From Doris, we've got for me, it's about understanding diversity and being inclusive. Cool, beautiful. So again, oh, Range of ticket prices, absolutely. We're talking about like financial and class equality there, right? We're talking about equity. Cool, beautiful. And again, we're seeing some like real similar like threads popping up between all of these, right? So we've got ideas of being on the same level, everyone on the same level in terms of space, yeah? We've got ideas of being able to come, come together as a group, as one, and be understood um, equally and listened to equally. So the idea of like sharing space is there. Um, and then we've also got like real physical stuff that we're talking about as well, structural things. We've got ticket prices, ramps, ease of access. Yeah, you know, faces, uh, spaces just physically are often not created or constructed for 
in ways that people can access to, right? Um, so I've got a little quote here. Um, accessibility is engagement, is the coming together of two or more experiences or people in space, physically, emotionally, and or intellectually. Yeah, this is as kind of broad a definition as I can kind of come up to. Um, and I think being broad here is really, really important because as we kind of saw just before, there are lots of common ideas and threads that came up in everything that we talked about. Yeah, we talked about equality, coming together, sharing, understanding, everyone having an opportunity to share and listen and engage, right? And that engagement um, looks entirely different in different settings and spaces, right? Engagement is such a broad, a broad term, yeah? So I want to ask one more question as well before I do some like more talking with this PowerPoint, these slides. And we've actually already touched on a lot of these as well already. So we've already kind of like mentioned a few. But I'd love to ask, what are the barriers to accessibility? Yeah, and it's the same as before. Yeah, what do these barriers look like physically, ideologically? What are barriers? And these can be barriers that you've encountered, that you've seen people encounter. Um, they can be like just general thoughts that you know about. Um, and then if you want a couple of words about why you think those barriers are there. Yeah, how do they function? Whose decision was it to not have a ramp into this space? Yeah, um, and how, how do these barriers stop us from um, from engaging with media and art the ways that we really want to, right? So I'm going to share one more time. For the last time, a little whiteboard. I'm going to clear, clear the screen. And yeah, just chuck up whatever, whatever comes to mind. So whatever barriers you might have come up against, whatever barriers you know of or have read about or have seen. Cool, I love that. Preconceptions and misconceptions. Absolutely. It's really interesting. And we'll be talking, we'll be touching on it a little bit later on as well. We'll be talking about assumptions and the assumptions that people make in terms of craft, but also in terms of um, engaging with communities as well. Preconceptions and misconceptions are often a combination of very little lived experience or um, personal knowledge of a subject mixed with a whole bunch of misinformation, poor research, and imagination gone wild in terms of forming opinions about a group. So we'll talk about that a little bit more later as well. Like, yeah, screens that are too small, theaters that don't have screens, y'all, I can't see. I paid 30, 40, 50 bucks for this unless I, can't get, unless I can get front row seats, which are often more expensive. Absolutely, absolutely. Sight lines, super important. Very few venues with ramps, absolutely. I think it's always been one of the things that really shocks me about um, about New Zealand. I know that in the UK, it's a requirement that all performance venues now have to come with ramps. They have to be accessible. And for some reason, that has not caught up in New Zealand yet. So we have quite a few performance venues that just have zero, zero access for people. Cool. General understanding barriers People don't know what is going on in the world of other people. Sometimes people with disabilities find it easier to lie about their condition to avoid arduous explanations. Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll be talking a little bit about that at the very end, right? Um, 
being a disabled person is real is real hard um holding on to experiences that don't have an outlet that don't have um easy avenues for you to share um and be received openly and with understanding is a real heavy thing to hold it's real exhausting and it builds up over time as well and it affects the way that we can move in spaces and create in spaces so we'll be talking about that a little bit more as well great thought um ignorance unwillingness to learn close-mindedness absolutely absolutely cool so we're seeing a nice like range oh lack of time willingness to open up some new ideas all ideas absolutely we're seeing Boom. Not just ramps. Are the seats wide enough for wheelchairs? Are the corridors wide enough? Are the attendants aware of protocol? Absolutely. We'll be chatting. Uh, in a, I'm saying that a lot, that we'll be chatting in a little bit, but we will be. Um, absolutely. We will chat a little bit about the idea of autonomous accessibility versus assisted um, mobility, which are not the same things, and people often don't make the difference um, in their heads. Cool. These are some really great great ideas these are really great um cool and from this like again we're seeing a whole kind of range of um of themes popping up right that are both kind of physical and conceptual which is really really cool i'm going to stop sharing for the last time and from doris in the chat we've got cost and elitism absolutely absolutely elitism is a really funny one elitism is a really funny one because it's kind of knowledge and uh, power relationship fused together where someone kind of believes that they're in a position of superiority um, over someone else due to a knowledge or uh, experience or some kind of aspect of themselves that they have that others don't, which is really interesting ways that um, information can pair up with power dynamics. Yeah. So we'll talk about that as well. Cool. Oh, I feel really like charged and energized by like all of those suggestions. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Cool. So now I'm going to like chat for a little while. So probably like the longest that I chat for. Um, and then hopefully we'll be able to come back and like have a real big corridor and some Q&A and questions and answers about um, what comes up and the ideas that you have all shared. Yeah. Cool. So first, we can talk about like physical barriers to accessibility. Yeah, um, this this workshop is geared because it's a writers' festival. Because we're talking about like creation as artists and how we create stories. Um, a lot of the information here is geared around um, conceptual kind of constructs. Yeah, it's based around like ideas of how we approach craft, how we approach stories, how we engage with them. Yeah, how stories exist in the world and how people interact with that. But accessibility is also 100% um, a physical and structural challenge that we face every time um, we walk into a space. And so I want to talk about a couple of things that came up as well. So again, we've got autonomous versus assisted mobility. Um, does anyone know what these two things are that wants to speak to them? Katie Pai. Um, so essentially, autonomous, uh, autonomous mobility is the ability for a person to move and operate within a space by themselves. Yeah. Oftentimes, venues chuck in elevators into a space thinking, oh, yeah, that's all, all that they need. Cool. That's we've got an accessible space. They don't realize that the elevator needs a key that someone needs to ask a staff member for. 
Yeah. So actually, that's not autonomous mobility. Someone can't enter into a venue and operate that themselves. That's actually assisted mobility. Yeah. And there are degrees of this. There are different degrees of assistance that people might need in terms of getting around and maneuvering within a space. But essentially, assisted mobility means that actually we need to ask or we need to um, inquire for a change to be made in order to be able to access a space the same way as other people. Yeah. And people don't really make that distinction when they're designing spaces all of the time. We kind of clump accessibility into this one lump thing, right? Can a person get into the venue or not? Yeah. And it's so much more than that. Um, some other physical barriers that we've got that can come up. So we've got a lack of interpreter or subtitles if we're talking about films. Um, this is really important for the deaf community and is often overlooked. Um, interpreters are expensive. Interpreters are very, very expensive. This is another cost element as well. Um, that is often not considered and also as well is just not available to artists, especially at the emerging um, and beginner level as well. We often just don't. Um, no, no, don't, don't. My bad, I lost the chat for a little second. Um, we often just don't have access to those kind of resources because they are expensive and they're not subsidized. Yeah. So an interpreter can cost anywhere from 50 to $90 an hour and putting subtitles on film on TV takes time. It is extensive. It takes a lot of energy and you need to pay people for that time and energy. Right. Um, cool. Physical barriers to accessibility, organization of time and communication, meetings, emails. Um, I don't know about any of you, but I have been not I have not been waking up at your standard 8 a.m. every day during lockdown, much closer to midday, right? Um, that's a very kind of like stereotypical idea of how time is organized differently between different people. But um, the amount of flexibility that we have for the ways that we arrange like time and communication isn't always geared up to be the most accessible for people, right? So we can chat about things like, sometimes I'm not even asleep by 8 a.m. from just, absolutely, 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 definitely being on that vibe as well. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm thinking back to like, that was me like four nights ago. Oh my gosh. Um, you know, these are allowances that when we work by ourselves, we can take account for, right? That's one of the perks of being a kind of um, freelancer or a freelance contractor. But we're working, when we're working in a group, that's not always available to us. And the avenues to kind of set that up aren't always available to us. Um, this extends into other kind of experiences as well. So for instance, uh, if we're working with neurodiverse people, um, face-to-face -face communication or emails, you know, hordes and hordes of long emails, you know, different avenues of communication work differently for different people, you know, and sometimes we expect people to be able to kind of jump into the norm. Yeah, we expect people to, oh yeah, jump into like a two-hour meeting, jump into the this email thread that is pages long, you know, and actually, that's just not accessible and it's not an effective way of communicating information to people. Um, so this is kind of this is a really short 
a really short collection of like physical and structural aspects of disabled, deaf, neurodiverse, mental health, countless other communities, right? Um, the specific physical needs of different communities are so subjective and so specific. And again, this workshop, we're kind of talking like conceptually, right? Or we have been up until now. I really encourage you, anyone here, if you want to learn more about physical barriers, physical accessibility, um, the places to go to are the communities themselves that you're trying to reach out to and engage with. Yeah. Um, there is no better source than the people that you want to talk to, to go to and inquire information from. Yeah. Um, I will post if anyone has any like specifics that they want to engage with at the end, let me know and I can chuck up some resources or some contacts maybe if any of this is up your alley or you've got some like physical barriers in your workplace or whatever that you want to try and like negotiate. Um, but for now, what I really want to talk about as well is sometimes access and inclusion are pitched as if there is only one world one universal experience to tap into. But there are as many worlds out there as there are people, languages, communities, cultures. Access on its own is a dead end. How do we give people opportunities to create experiences once they're in the room, or even better, on their own in a world that they get to define? Yeah? So now that we are talking about um, some real barriers to accessibility. Um, and I want to talk about some like solutions and then also get into some like community-based solutions and personal-based solutions. Um, so the first one I really want to talk about is community is tether, yeah? Who are you talking about? How are they involved? How does this work serve that community? Yeah? And again, I want to go back to um, the idea of lived experience and um, research and imagination, yeah? Now, we'll be talking about that a little bit more, but I want to kind of bring up or um, set up this idea that sometimes we encounter in creative processes where lived experience and then research and imagination are separated, yeah? We talk about them as two separate entities. Research and imagination kind of operate on their own and then lived experience becomes its own thing, yeah? Sometimes when we talk about lived experience, we immediately find that our work starts to get lumped into really um, specific modes of creation, right? And we'll talk about that a little bit more. Um, so when we talk only from a position of craft without considering community, it becomes possible to make and present art which is both well-crafted and disconnected from its source material, yeah? And I want to really, like, stress a point here as well. Well-crafted does not always mean um, ethical, yeah? Um, a film that people are raving about or a show that people have really enjoyed um, might be incredibly well-crafted, but also might rub people the wrong way for a certain reason in terms of the stories that they are seeing on stage. Um, and I just want to jump back into a real like quick group discussion real quickly. Um, has anyone experienced a show or 
a piece of media recently that has been really well received in terms of like <laughs> the wider community, but you watched it or you've seen it and you're like, nope, not for me. This is real, real trash. <laughs> cool. Jess? Um, hi. Sorry. I feel like I'm talking a lot, but um, you, the show on Netflix, Disclaimer, I do love it, um, but also I'm just really sick of the your family life was awful and you had no relationship with your parents and therefore you're a murderer who stalks people. Um, yeah, just the whole concept that bad family lives means that you're now a bad person and kind of the relationship between different like attachment disorders and issues and things like that really gets up my alley. Heck yeah, heck yeah. I remember um, there was an article a long time ago from Pam Badgley, who's the like lead actor of You, I think. Um, he was real concerned because he was starting to get so many messages from people talking about how attracted to, the, to him they were. And he was really uncomfortable with it. And he was like, this is not <laughs> the art that I thought I was making. This is not what I thought we were doing. Oh, God. Um which is a big kind of like separation of like craft versus recep reception of it. Cool. Thank you, Jess. I love it. Um, Molly, and then we'll jump on to Brendan. Is that good? Um, for me, it's the show Insatiable on Netflix, um, which is basically about a girl that is fat and then she gets, she like is in an accident and loses a whole lot of weight because of it and becomes a beauty queen. And I just hate the way that it, yeah, I saw the eye roll, Jess. That was me too. Um, I hate the way that it portrays fat people and disabled people. And it basically just says, if you don't look this certain way and fit into a certain like box, then you can't be considered beautiful or normal or whatever. Um, and just the whole show is really toxic. Like all the characters as well, they go on to do awful things and um, like use their own experiences as excuses for those awful things. When those things are like murder and infidelity and it's kind of like, Ooh, yeah, your experiences are not excuses for committing literal crimes. <laughs> Heck yeah, I love that. I love that. There's such a like real interesting uh, philosophical conversation in there about the idea of um, I don't know if you I don't know if anyone has ever heard this before. The idea of like um, whenever you're writing a character or a story about a character, even if they're a villain, you've got to make the audience fall in love with them. Hey, yeah, people have heard that before. That's a really interesting, a real interesting question when we're also talking about like artworks that are deconstructing or looking at real like um, harmful behavior, right? It becomes a real interesting conversation because actually really similar to what Jess was talking about as well with you, that idea of like people falling in love with and therefore not interrogating behavior because sometimes creators do too good a job of making audiences fall in love with terrible people you know so there's some like a nice middle ground as well somewhere in there <laughs> i um i sorry for jumping on in without raising my hand the creators did say they intentionally added a um child character that will who is um pen bagley who is the lead character 
be friends and looks after to give him a more human side. So he is a um, a kidnapper and a murderer, but he also befriends children and looks after them. And he's really nice. And he's really lovely if you don't think about what he does to women and to people that get in his way of women that he's wanting to pursue. So, yeah, you you fall in love with him on purpose. And then you're like, wait, I I love a murderer. This is wrong. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, those... Dan, there are so many, there are so many like quick tactics that people take for that. Attractive, attractive lead man, you know, empathetic lead man, you know, feels guilty about what he does and has a real empathetic side towards a vulnerable person, either a child or an elderly relative um, or a disabled child. Ah, oh, I don't know. Do you guys, do y'all remember um, in the early 2000s, there was like a splurge of films that were in almost entirely around single parents looking after their disabled children and like real, really struggling hard, like fighting to keep their jobs and fighting to like look after their kids and do right for the kids. And it was really, it's, oh, bring it, I bring it up specifically because I, I remember looking at it for my master's real interesting because what ends up happening is often you get this child character who is most often a boy often um autistic and often a savant as well that kind of like three-pronged tier and they're what happens is they're used as a kind of like sympathy trap for the parents to show how much the mother is struggling and to show how hard the mother is working as well which is a story that exists in real life like there are parents legitimately going through that journey right now but it's interesting that when, when we put that onto the screen suddenly the story shifts and becomes a disabled character or a new diverse character used as a prop to achieve a function for your main character anyway that's me also interrupting brendan i'm sorry you've had your hand raised patiently for so long jump on in that's okay i was i was mostly worried i was going to get spoilers for you i'm halfway through season three um <laughs> and also like like I, I think we can all agree dan's got some pin badgley vibes all right uh yeah look at that um my my one is from quite a few years ago actually when um we could travel and i went to uh i was I got to go to Edinburgh Fringe to perform there, and I, I went to see a show which was critically acclaimed. Everybody was talking about it, a lot of buzz, um, and it was a kind of like a devised comedy, heavy on audience participation, which I is for a lot of people and me. I, got, I already get tense, tense up at that idea, and I absolutely hated it. Um, and specifically, he got me up on stage um there was no chance for me to say no at like there was just no out whatsoever he got me up on stage 100 people laughing at me um he made me do things I had to take my top off which I did not want to do and like was yeah really really horrific um and that has 100% stayed with me like like in a like any audience participation and yet i still have to do it when i'm emceeing a show i like there's 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 that live element which is important but um yeah that that one really stuck with me is like oh i i hate this everybody here thinks this is genius and i hate this and i don't hate a lot of things so yeah that was that was my one (laughs) thank you for that that's 
Huge. I'm really sorry as well. That's a real like intrusion on your boundaries without any consideration for your levels of comfort <laughs> at all. Oh, that's really, really gross. Audience participation is also one that makes me like freeze up like pretty instantly. I do not like um I do not like it at all. People often people often assume I find and I don't know if um this rings true for other people as well. People people often assume that because I'm a poet and because a lot of my a lot of my work involves standing on my own on stage performing um, that I must be quite a confident person, that I must be quite an extroverted person. Um, and that's not actually the case at all. I am very anxious. Um, I do a lot of preparation before I go on stage in any kind of like public facing capacity. And actually I do a lot of work before any kind of like public facing thing like a party meeting friends you know that's always a really big part of um my preparation for entering into a space right and that preparation that journey that i go through often isn't acknowledged or something that other people in the space can be aware of right i find a lot of the time with audience participation especially like being aware because like you can't right you can't be aware of what audience members are bringing into a space what work they might have done to be able to sit in that space comfortably for some people it might be none at all for others it might be a lot but it's like how if you're a creator who's going to use audience participation as a device do you find a balance between both of these experiences right from no preparation to a lot of preparation how do you make both people all, all, everyone along that spectrum, along that slide, equally comfortable, right? That's a really, really like, interesting question. Thanks, Brandon. Molly, you got your hand up. Do you want to jump on in? Um, yeah, just going off what you said, I find that there seems to be kind of a separation in the creative community where there are those sorts of people who are like, oh, yeah, jump on in, participate. It's great. You'll love it. And then there are a whole bunch of us who are kind of, the whole reason that we are creating and performing is because we don't have that confidence. And so the other creatives who are all like, yeah, get into it. It can be really off-putting when you're like, oh my gosh, the whole reason I'm doing this is because I'm not confident. 100%. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. I, I don't act anymore. It's not really something that I do very often. Um, but I started off as an actor a really long time ago. And occasionally I walk into a space, a rehearsal room or whatever, and people will know about the fact that I used to act and they'll ask me to jump on into a space. Um, and I'll say, oh, no, I, I didn't I, like I didn't plan for that. I didn't don't really feel comfortable. I feel kind of anxious. A lot of the times with actors, especially actors are terrible for this. Actors will jump on in and say, no, come on, don't worry. It's a fun space. There are no wrong offers. Come on in. Have fun. Playful. Just say yes. It does not work like that at all, yeah? We've talked a little bit before, we were all mentioning, like, assumptions, right? People bring their assumptions into a space. Sometimes, what am I saying? How am I going to word it? Sometimes the awareness for anxieties in a space, especially rehearsal rooms, and again, actors are really, really bad at it, the awareness and capacity for people to mold a creative process like a rehearsal room or an audition or whatever around experiences like anxiety are non-existent 
non-existent. And we'll get into this in just a second because we're about to jump into like different creative barriers and craft. But this is something that the theater and like acting world I know in particular has experienced for a long time. Even if we consider like the idea of an audition, right? And Brendan, this might be useful for you in terms of like film world, yeah? The idea of a film audition. Often actors are expected to turn up. They have 30 seconds, whatever, and the burden is on them to make the absolute best impression that they can. Yeah? You've got 30 seconds. Sell it to us. And what ends up happening is actually you've got this relationship where a casting director is actually kind of similar to an audience member, right? They assume that they're in a position where they don't have to interrogate their knowledge, they don't have to interrogate the space that they've created, and that they actually have a lot of control over. And the burden lies on the actors... Yeah, to make the most of it. That's their work. They have to do the job of managing the anxiety, coming into a space and doing the best work that they can. Yeah, that work is very rarely acknowledged and taken into account. Yeah, and every actor has anxiety. Yeah, I don't think anyone really enjoys auditions. Some people do, you know, like we all have some degree of anxiety around preparing for an audition. But an acknowledgement and an awareness of the scale of that anxiety does not exist at all, yeah? And very rarely takes into consideration people um, on the more extreme end of that spectrum, yeah? Yeah, as an expiring actor with anxiety, auditions are literal hellscapes. I 100% agree. It's actually one of the reasons that I um, dropped being an actor and focused more on poetry as well. I found that I was putting myself through so much stress and anxiety and paranoia trying to like prepare for auditions, which would end up being like five minutes in front of pretending to eat KFC or a burger, you know? It would be like two days worth of terror leading up to five minutes, and it just wreaks havoc on your body. It's exhausting. Boom. Thank you for that, everyone. Those were some really like phenomenal thoughts. I really loved that. That was great. Um, We've got a bit... 20 minutes left, so I'm going to rush through. I've got like one or two more slides to jump through. I think a lot of it will be able to like speed through because they've kind of already come up a little bit. Um, but it's just a couple of more things around uh, creative and personal barriers and community barriers that we might experience, yeah? So some creative barriers to accessibility. Uh, storytellers often gravitate towards diagnostic experiences of mental health, for example, for their unknown or mysterious quality. Storytelling can thrive, often unethically, in spaces of ignorance. Now, we've talked a little bit about this before. Yeah, we've talked about the assumptions and um, elitism that can kind of come up in creative um processes right so we've got assumptions of our knowledge and assumptions of superior knowledge process belief and craft chuck a quick like react thing whatever into the, <laughs> into the chat if you have ever experienced uh working in a process where you've tried to be open and adapt to like new things new information like really take as much in as possible and you've just been met with someone who has a set way of doing things. They've maybe they've trained or they've done this work for so many years and they're like, nope, we're going to do it this way. This story is about this. And there are no exceptions because I know what this is. Can I just jump in and say that I have been that person? Um, yeah. And in hindsight, like, I'm really ashamed of it because... 
I think um, it really restricts other people's abilities to be their full creative selves. And now I have to try and like, cause I'm quite a controlling person. I have to really try and rein that in, in a creative space. Cause it can be really detrimental to the work you're creating. Mm. Heck yeah. I think absolutely. First of all, um, congrats on coming to that realization as well. I think, um, I think one of the most difficult things that we can do as people, as human beings in general, is um, come face to face with our assumptions and with the knowledge that we hold. Um, and that has been built up over our whole lives. Yeah. And challenge it and interrogate it and admit that we might be wrong. I think that's huge. Um, so I just want to say one, thank you for sharing that. That's a really like beautiful and vulnerable thing to share. Um, and then also like congratulations, because I know how intense that journey is to go through to to slowly like listen and learn and then adapt as well. Lots of people are really unwilling to do that. So thank you and congratulations. That should be huge. Mm. So, yeah, assumptions of knowledge, assumptions of superior knowledge. And then I want to talk a little bit about the over-reliance on trope instead of research. Yeah, um, I've chucked up, up some examples um here a little bit uh, some of which we've already talked about so you we've got the psychotic serial killer also the variant that we see in you we've got the empathetic uh, serial killer we see that in dexter end of the fucking world you know this is something that we see a lot yeah they're a monster but also they've got a heart of gold that means everything else doesn't matter um we've got the awkward savant who's always a man which we kind of talked about as well manic pixie dream girl Assumption, and I, I think I mentioned this earlier as well, an assumption of knowledge is when a tiny bit of either lived experience or research, yeah, is compounded on with just fuck tons of imagination. Just so much, yeah? So there will be a kind of like, has anyone heard this before? The idea like a cliche always has like a kernel of truth in it. Yeah. So often we find that when we look into these tropes, there will be aspects of them that are maybe true or they're based off of something that actually exists in the real world. But then the dramatic effect that they're then taken to use and used for is actually compounded with so much imagination and so much created information. Yeah. That actually our idea of what this real like kernel of truth is becomes consumed and overtaken by this idea of what has been created before, yeah? So when we talk about the idea of psychotic uh, serial killer, for instance, when I started to make work in New Zealand, um, gosh, maybe like five or six years ago, um, I was making work around psychosis, and often I would get people coming up and talking to me about how they didn't think that I was talking about psychosis at all. I couldn't be because I wasn't talking about violence. I wasn't violent. I wasn't aggressive, you know. Them watching the shows or the material, the artwork that I was creating was a real challenge because their expectation of what they were going to see um, completely did not match up with what they were seeing in me, right? My personal lived experience, which I had used to construct this artwork, didn't match up with the imaginative experience that they had had from watching films and watch and reading stories. Yeah. It wasn't what they expected. And those two worlds clashed and it clashes in a way 
um, whenever it happens with whatever trope, whenever lived experience and the imagination doesn't line up, um, whenever they're not informing one another, what happens is the audience is kind of like jolted and they go, wait, hang on. Something, an aspect of this isn't true. One of like one of these things is lying to me because they don't mash up. You remember in the beginning, I said that theater is essentially a, collect a collection of like thousands of decisions that creative creatives make that eventually come together to form one cohesive whole, right? And the same is true for any art form, yeah? Any art form is just a series of decisions about what we put out in a space, how we arrange it, and what that communicates to someone else, yeah? So with poetry, we're talking about the arrangement of words on a page. With comedy, I do not know comedy at all, but I assume we're talking about setup and then punchline. You know, theater, we're talking about a script that then relates to actions that characters take on stage, yeah? Um, the degrees of separation from like writing to artwork change. Again, theater is kind of once removed, whereas poetry is often just writer to audience. Comedy is often writer to audience, you know, but there is still that idea of like, I am creating something and then handing it over. And so I want to talk a little bit about um, something that we hear a lot against lived experience, because essentially what we're what I'm trying to get at, and I think the entire like case of this workshop is a little bit about is the fact that again lived experience research and imagination not one is any better than the other but the three of them need to inform each other they need to work together and as soon as you start to rely on one without considering the other you start to get works that ring untrue after you um after you really start to like interrogate and critique them yeah and that happens often when we as people with lived experience who make work about that experience put work in a space, right? We prioritize our lived experience more than has been prioritized in the past. And that's jarring for audiences because they're seeing sources of information that they haven't encountered before. They've never had to encounter before, yeah? So if we're talking about, for instance, horror, um, a big trope in horror, for instance, is the idea of, um, madness as uh, as a horror monster as madness yeah or madness as this unknowable evil we see that in kind of uh jason we see that in michael myers yeah these villains who don't really have characters but are instead a kind of embodiment of a concept yeah they're an embodiment of psychotic serial killer um, and again, that's the same thing. That's an imaginative creation that ends up overtaking the lived experience of what it might have started with. Yeah. And actually what ends up happening is very little lived experiences end up, is left in the performance. So some arguments that we hear about lived experience when we when we enter into spaces and we start talking about it. Yeah. Um, it's not playful. It's not fun. And again, um, we were talking about this with actors right before. Yeah. Like, come on. It's just this is a fine. This is an easy, fun, easy space. Yeah. Molly was chatting about this just before this idea that you should just be able to participate. Come on, take risks. It's fun. Yeah. Another thing that we might hear is that we're not here to entertain, uh, entertain people. Um, oh, sorry. We're not here to teach people. We're here to entertain them. Yeah, there's this idea that lived experience isn't interesting, which is just not true. Jess, you got something you want to chuck, chuck in? 
Um, yeah, I'll make it quick because I know we're running out of time, but lived experience really gets me, especially with portrayals of anxiety and depression, because we've all heard it. It's like one beautiful person with a with a singular tear rolling down their face. And they don't talk about the fact that you might not have left your bedroom for a few days because you were so anxious, or you might not have showered um as much as you should, or you might not have brushed your teeth as much as you should, or maybe even changed your sheets in weeks. And um, yeah, I'm just sick of the whole like. Oh, but for me, I was mildly sad one day, therefore I have depression. And it's like, no, you don't, um, obviously not to undermine anybody else's lived experiences with sadness and those sorts of feelings, but it's like the portrayal of depression and anxiety in media and in plays sometimes, in certain poetry, um, in, in spaces of humour as well, where it's like, ha ha, I'm depressed, so funny. It's like, it's okay, your lived experiences are not the same and it's not the same as everybody else. Yeah. Mm. I think something really interesting that I think you're touching on there is part of the function of tropes, one of the advantages that they have is that they become a shorthand, yeah? They become a pocket of information that audiences understand immediately, yeah? They become a really efficient way of getting a lot of information across without having to resort to exposition, yeah that is the function of a trope a trope allows us to get a lot of information across without having to really talk about it yeah which makes it a really effective tool yeah and again this idea of like craft not always being ethical a trope is a really effective tool when it's used um well because it means the pace of your story or the artwork or the narrative that you're creating can speed along really really quickly but it means that, again, sometimes lived experience is left behind, yeah? Because that inclusion of lived experience and that awareness wasn't included in the creative process, wasn't included in the beginning. A lot of the problems that we encounter now as well, trying to re-include lived experience and refocus on lived experience, is that a lot of these tropes have gained a lot of ground. We've been, we've had these um, stories and these tropes for years and years and years and years to the point where they've actually like cemented and um, embedded themselves in what we consider storytelling craft to be to the point where we're actually challenging them and trying to subvert them and say that they might be wrong, which is kind of what you were just talking about, Jess, actually can get you a lot of flack, Yeah because people have known these tropes all their lives to the point where a lot of them have become truth. Yeah. Kind of leads me on to this next one, which is it comes with a lot of information already present and organized, meaning we have to work to decode it. Yeah. Again, trope is efficient. You can look at a trope on in a film, in a movie, and you can assume a lot of information really, really quickly. Encountering lived experience that we've never encountered before means that we have to spend more time breaking it down and decoding it, yeah? That's a lot of work. And it's a lot of um, inquisitive work into topics that we've never, we might never have encountered before, yeah? Which means that we have to encounter that uncertainty a lot of people are really, really reluctant to do this. Audiences, casting directors, actors, creatives, everyone. Yeah? We all like efficiency. We all like skating by. We all like making work more efficient if we can. Yeah? And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with making processes faster. But when we make processes faster, we have to be really careful of what... Um, 
we're leaving behind in order to do that, yeah? Which is often, in the past, has been lived experience. Cool. Do, 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 do. So we've already kind of like talked about this a little bit, about some of the questions and challenges and solutions as well that pop up for us as creatives when we want to restart to focus on lived experience, right? So there's this question of craft, like if we do kind of like that thing of if we do have to spend 20, 20 seconds on exposition in the beginning of a three minute poem, yeah? How do we do that, yeah? While also making sure that we still stay well enough within what people expect that we can be an entertaining story, yeah? Brendan was kind of talking about this um, earlier as well, that line between, okay, I want to say something that's relatable, I want to get the laughs, I want to get stuff that I know will have put an audience on side, yeah? Because audiences have to be on side, they have to be engaging with us, regardless of what we're trying to say. But also, how do I include material that is new, that is sort of... Um, uh, surprising and subversive and might be challenging yeah how do you slowly push um that line more and more yeah and ultimately that's kind of the journey that a lot of us are on you know we are on a process of slowly over time including more and more information more and more lived experience into the stories that we tell until eventually we like wrench some of the tropes that are a little bit less useful and we replace that with new stories and information right and that's a long process that takes a really long time for um communities and groups of people to change the stories that they're familiar with and encounter new information um, kind of what Molly was talking about earlier, right? You know, it's challenging to really face what we already know and the assumptions that we make based off that and incorporate new information. It's hard, it's challenging, and it takes a lot of time, yeah? So I want to chat just quickly about some pitfalls as well that we sometimes fall into. Um, because again, we work sometimes in mainstream spaces and mainstream spaces will try and push us in directions that um, feel comfortable for them or feel quick and efficient for them. Um, and that can be a time, resource, or money thing, depending. So some pitfalls. Um, if you're working from lived experience primarily or trying to incorporate more lived experience, there's an assumption that work um, must be autobiographical. It must be framed as a sharing, yeah? Um, this happens in theatre a lot. The idea that if we're talking about uh, mental health or disability, for instance, it's probably going to be a solo show. Um, it's probably going to be a lot of monologues, um, and it's probably going to be based off of the person's life, right? Doesn't necessarily have to be. Um, there's also an assumption that if it's based around lived experience, it has to be educational, yeah? Oh, we're encountering new information. Cool, that means, okay, we're learning. We're learning. Cool, we're swapping over from entertainment, and we're going into a learning space. Cool. Sometimes audiences make that switch really quickly, really quickly they will go from oh cool this is a show where i can sit back and be entertained into oh no this is a story where i'm going to learn something okay cool often community theater has this problem as well yeah people will walk into a community theater show for instance and be like oh yeah this is a community theater show i'm not going to see like great performances but i'll see aspects of the community and i'll learn something yeah which is not always the case yeah but what that is, is an audience bringing their assumptions into a performance, into an artwork um, that then colors their interpretation of that information. Yeah. Um, 
And so lastly, um, work around lived experience must be singular. This is one thing that I think the disabled community encounters more than anyone else, which is this idea that if you're talking about an experience, um, it should be one experience. And often it should be diagnostic in nature. Theater, I think, is a really kind of bad um, proponent of this. I know I've been guilty of it in the past of work that I've made. This idea that, oh, I'm going to go and see a show about depression. I'm going to go and see a show about anxiety. I'm going to go and see a show about psychosis. You know, we again, audiences have this assumption that they're going to see a singular experience. Something that I'm actually I've been working on or grappling with really recently is how experiences of psychosis and anxiety and PTSD for me interact with each other in really interesting ways. Right. Three different kind of experiences and how they all inform decisions um, that I might make or that a character might make in a play or a poem, you know? Um, that's actually, as well, new ground, um, or would be new ground for a lot of um, disabled creative work. Um, in terms of stories that we have not seen before, we don't see a lot of stories about um, different mental health experiences interacting with each other. So if anyone um, was in this workshop looking for like what to do next or what kind of stories we could use more of, I would definitely suggest that. I would definitely suggest different experiences of mental health interacting with one each other with one another um, within a community because I don't think we have enough of that. Um, cool. I'm gonna rush through really, really quickly because we've got three minutes and then we can have a really like quick final thoughts, question and answer at the end. But I'm gonna just rush through this really quickly. Um, Ellie, if you are there and you need me to like stop, just feel free to like slice me and interrupt at any point. <laughs> um, cool, so this is kind of like starting to talk about like moving out into the real world as well, past this like workshop and past the ideological kind of chats as well. Um, just a couple of reminders. Um, the challenge for, um, the burden, I suppose, of reimagining craft, reimagining storytelling, and challenging storytelling to include more lived experience, include more stories that we've never heard before, does not fall entirely on the creators. It is not your sole responsibility to make sure that that happens. What I mean when I say that is that that responsibility, primarily, in fact, falls on our creative community as a whole, and the organizations that have a lot of power within it. Yeah? Um, in order to create new processes from the ground up, you need time, space, money, and the ability to fail and not be punished. This is not something that we are often given the opportunity to have. Yeah? Time and space to create processes, to create work, and also create work that fails, to venture into new territory, create works that try new things and then have them fall on their face, you know? Like, ah, oh, I tried to make this new story that talked about lived experience and it didn't work. Fuck. Okay, let's try again, you know? Often we're not given the opportunity and we should be, yeah? This is something that we talk a lot about in drama schools, we talk a lot about it in education, the importance of failing yeah the importance of failing learning and trying again or the idea that failure is valuable something that we hear a lot but isn't actually actioned tremendously well yeah primarily this is because creative work takes time and money and investment yeah and um a lot of organizations are under um pressure 
to see a return on their investment, which is a bigger kind of industrial um, governance kind of question. Um, but a lot of the times that falls on the artist as well, that pressure, yeah, and it shouldn't. We, I think in general, need more and more to practice what we preach when we say that actually failure is really valuable, especially when we're talking about encountering new forms of storytelling and new stories that have never been encountered before. Yeah, that is necessary. Um, it's a big part of, I know, um, working alongside the deaf community as well, which is not a community I'm a part of. There's a concept in the deaf community called deaf-led, which is essentially what it says on the tin, which is a process should be led, if it is going to include and center deaf people, it should be led and organized by deaf people. I've been in meetings which are with a mixture of deaf and hearing um, participants, which have been deaf-led, and have had hearing participants get really frustrated because what they see, what they perceive is that the meeting is kind of stumbling or it's taking longer than it should, yeah? What they don't realize or what they don't connect with is the fact that actually what they're seeing is a community who has not had the opportunity to create space and process, create that from the ground up. So there are stumblings sometimes, there are new discoveries and that takes time it takes time to develop and grow yeah and we don't see that we don't see that process happening because we expect that if we hand over space like oh cool great create a show about um psychosis oh boom i don't know how to do that yet i want to learn and i want to have a space and time to learn but that will take time yeah and i'll need to be able to try things get it wrong and then put that in that cool this didn't work basket yeah um so the case for a lived experience um i'll literally like scroll through all these quick ones we don't actually have that much left but so the case for lived experience we often don't see the pool between an experience and the management of said experience this is kind of what we were talking about um with auditions earlier yeah for example there's both the existence of symptoms within the individual but also the process of how those experiences are managed both internally and then presented publicly so a person might not seem anxious on the outside but feel it deeply internally yeah one of the benefits of working from lived experience and one of the biggest arguments for it, for including it and referencing it, is that it means that we're more able to separate and understand those two processes, yeah? Internal management and sy symptoms as they present themselves publicly, yeah? Research and imagination tend to fuse those things into one because all we see is the person doing both processes at the same time. Does that make sense? So we see both of those processes in one person being expressed as one thing. So we collect them, yeah? Lived experience, one of the benefits, and this is an argument that you can take with you to your next process thing, lived experience means that you can separate and really interrogate those two things um, separately before they come together and interact. We'll actually have a little like group discussion about this um, in a second instead of um, going through it. Um, the title kind of sums everything up about this slide, yeah? Question the way that you present information. Like I said, any creative process is a collection of creative decisions and an arrangement of information in a certain way for a certain effect. If you want to change that effect, question the way that that information is collected 
and organized, yeah? Fuck with time, fuck with language, fuck with form, yeah? Look at where you're getting your information from. Interrogate where that information is coming from. Look at the resources that you are drawing on and the people that you are, um, that you are looking to, yeah? And then I'm actually gonna end on these uh, two little slides. It's just a little like quote thing almost. Um, an audience member not enjoying your work isn't always a reflection of the craft. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's an unwillingness to engage with the other, to engage with discomfort. Sometimes we just don't want to think too hard. It's painful to be told that your experience isn't worth the effort of engagement, to be put in a too hard basket. But art is a response to information, an acceptance or not, an understanding or not. An arrangement of information from which we can create new meaning. Art is exponential. It expands on and develops. It grows and spreads out. It creates a shorthand. But no matter how great the art, it is nothing without the seed that started it. No matter how small or how simple, it was there. And it was the catalyst for everything. Even in the face of all this wonder, the seed existed first. You existed first. Um, but yeah, other than that, that's all the information that I had to share. Um, thank you again, I should say, to uh, UNESCO City of Literature, Dunedin, um, Otago Access Radio for letting this be like podcasted and preserved, which is really exciting. And then uh, Dunedin City Council and Otago Community Trust for enabling all of this and the wonderful festival that is currently happening down in Dunedin, but we get the joys of experiencing it technologically instead. So, thanks everyone. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.